the Duke turned to Howard. Thuvia, did you get those account books you said you could buy? Yes, my lord. They're being examined in detail even now. I've skimmed them, though, and can give a first approximation. Give it, then. The Harkonnens took ten billion Solaris out of here every three hundred and thirty standard days. A muted gasp ran around the table. Even the younger aides who had been betraying some boredom sat up straighter and exchanged wide-eyed looks. Halleck murmured, For they shall suck of the abundance of the seas and of the treasure hid in the sand. You see, gentlemen, Leto said, is there anyone here so naive he believes the Harkonnens have quietly packed up and walked away from all this merely because the Emperor ordered it? There was a general shaking of heads, murmurous agreement. We will have to take it at the point of the sword, Leto said. He turned to Howard. This would be a good point to report on equipment. How many sand crawlers, harvesters, spice factories and supporting equipment have they left us? A full complement, as it says in the Imperial Inventory, audited by the Judge of the Change, my lord, Howard said. He gestured for an aide to pass him a folder, opened the folder on the table in front of him. They neglect to mention that less than half the crawlers are operable, that only about a third have carry-alls to fly them to spice sands, that everything the Harkonnens left us is ready to break down and fall apart. We'll be lucky to get half the equipment into operation, and luckier yet if a fourth of it's still working six months from now. Pretty much as we expected, Leto said. What's the firm estimate on basic equipment? Howard glanced at his folder. About 930 harvester factories that can be sent out in a few days. About 6,250 ornithopters for survey, scouting, and weather observation. Carryalls a little under a thousand. Halleck said, Wouldn't it be cheaper to reopen negotiations with the Guild for permission to orbit a frigate as a weather satellite? The Duke looked at Howard. Nothing new there, eh, Thufir? We must pursue other avenues for now, Howard said. The Guild agent wasn't really negotiating with us. He was merely making it plain, one mentor to another, that the price was out of our reach and would remain so no matter how long a reach we develop. Our task is to find out why before we approach him again. One of Halleck's aides down the table swivelled in his chair, snapped, There's no justice in this. Justice? The Duke looked at the man. Who asks for justice? We make our own justice. We make it here on Arrakis. Win or die. Do you regret casting your lot with us, sir? The man stared at the Duke. Then, no, sire. You couldn't turn, and I could do naught but follow you. Forgive the outburst, but... He shrugged. We must all feel bitter at times. Bitterness I understand, the Duke said. But let us not rail about justice as long as we have arms and the freedom to use them. Do any of the rest of you harbour bitterness? If so, let it out. This is friendly counsel where any man may speak his mind. Halleck stirred, said, I think what rankles, sire, is that we've had no volunteers from the other great houses. They address you as Leto the Just and promise eternal friendship, but only as long as it doesn't cost them anything. They don't know yet who's going to win this exchange, the Duke said. Most of the houses have grown fat by taking few risks. One cannot truly blame them for this. One can only despise them. He looked at Howard. We were discussing equipment. Would you care to project a few examples to familiarise the men with this machinery? Howard nodded, gestured to an aide at the projector. 
A Solido Tri-D projection appeared on the table surface about a third of the way down from the Duke. Some of the men farther along the table stood up to get a better look at it. Paul leaned forward, staring at the machine. Scaled against the tiny projected human figures around it, the thing was about 120 metres long and about 40 metres wide. It was basically a long, bug-like body moving on independent sets of wide tracks. This is a harvester factory, Howard said. We chose one in good repair for this projection. There's one dragline outfit that came in with the first team of imperial ecologists, though, and it's still running, although I don't know how or why. If that's the one they call Old Maria, it belongs in a museum, an aide said. I think the Harkonnens kept it as a punishment job, a threat hanging over their workers' heads. Be good or you'll be assigned to Old Maria. Chuckles sounded around the table. Paul held himself apart from the humour, his attention focused on the projection and the question that filled his mind. He pointed to the image on the table, said, Thufir, are there sandworms big enough to swallow that whole? Quick silence settled on the table. The Duke cursed under his breath, then thought, No, they have to face the realities here. There are worms in the deep desert could take this entire factory in one gulp, Howard said. Up here, closer to the shield wall where most of the spicing's done, there are plenty of worms that could cripple this factory and devour it at their leisure. Why don't we shield them? Paul asked. According to Idaho's report, Howard said, shields are dangerous in the desert. A body-sized shield will call every worm for hundreds of metres around. It appears to drive them into a killing frenzy. We've the Fremen word on this and no reason to doubt it. Idaho saw no evidence of shield equipment at the CH. None at all? Paul asked. It'd be pretty hard to conceal that kind of thing among several thousand people, Howard said. Idaho had free access to every part of the CH. He saw no shields or any indication of their use. It's a puzzle, the Duke said. The Harkonnens certainly used plenty of shields here, Howard said. They had repair depots in every garrison village, and their accounts show a heavy expenditure for shield replacements and parts. Could the Fremen have a way of nullifying shields? Paul asked. It doesn't seem likely, Howard said. It's theoretically possible, of course. A shire-sized static countercharge is supposed to do the trick, but no one's ever been able to put it to the test. We'd have heard about it before now, Halleck said. The smugglers have close contact with the Fremen, and would have acquired such a device if it were available, and they'd have had no inhibitions against marketing an off-planet. I don't like an unanswered question of this importance, Leto said. Thufir, I want you to give top priority to solution of this problem. We're already working on it, my lord. He cleared his throat. Ah, Idaho did say one thing. He said you couldn't mistake the Fremen attitude toward shields. He said they were mostly amused by them. The Duke frowned, then. The subject under discussion is spicing equipment. Howard gestured to his aide at the projector. The solido image of the harvester factory was replaced by a projection of a winged device that dwarfed the images of human figures around it. This is a carryall, Howard said. It's essentially a large thopter whose sole function is to deliver a factory to spice-rich sands, then to rescue the factory when a sandworm appears. They always appear. Harvesting the spice is a process of getting in and getting out with as much as possible. Admirably suited to Harkonnen morality, the Duke said. 
laughter was abrupt and too loud. An ornithopter replaced the carryall in the projection focus. These thopters are fairly conventional, Howard said. Major modifications give them extended range. Extra care has been used in sealing essential areas against sand and dust. Only about one in thirty is shielded, possibly discarding the shield generator's weight for greater range. I don't like this de-emphasis on shields, the Duke muttered. And he thought, is this the Harkonnen secret? Does it mean we won't even be able to escape on shielded frigates if all goes against us? He shook his head sharply to drive out such thoughts, said, Let's get to the working estimate. What'll our profit figure be? Howard turned two pages in his notebook. After assessing the repairs and operable equipment, we've worked out a first estimate on operating costs. It's based naturally on a depreciated figure for a clear safety margin. He closed his eyes in Mentat semitrance, said, Under the Harkonnens, maintenance and salaries were held to 14%. We'll be lucky to make it at 30% at first. With reinvestment and growth factors accounted for, including the chome percentage and military costs, our profit margin will be reduced to a very narrow 6 or 7% until we can replace worn-out equipment. We then should be able to boost it up to 12 or 15% where it belongs. He opened his eyes. Unless my lord wishes to adopt Harkonnen methods. We are working for a solid and permanent planetary base, the Duke said. We have to keep a large percentage of the people happy, especially the Fremen. Most especially the Fremen, Howard agreed. Our supremacy on Caladan, the Duke said, depended on sea and air power. Here we must develop something I choose to call desert power. This may include air power, but it's possible it may not. I call your attention to the lack of thopter shields. He shook his head. The Harkonnens relied on turnover from off-planet for some of their key personnel. We don't dare. Each new lot would have its quota of provocateurs. Then we'll have to be content with far less profit and reduced harvest, Howard said. Our output the first two seasons should be down a third from the Harkonnen average. There it is, the Duke said, exactly as we expected. We'll have to move fast with the Fremen— I'd like five full battalions of Fremen troops before the first Chome audit. That's not much time, sir, Howard said. We don't have much time, as you well know. They'll be here with Sardaka disguised as Harkonnens at the first opportunity. How many do you think they'll ship in, Thufir? Four or five battalions all told, sir. No more. Guild troop transport costs being what they are. Then five battalions of Fremen plus our own forces ought to do it. Let us have a few captive Sardaka to parade in front of the Lanzarote Council, and matters will be much different, profits or no profits. We'll do our best, sir. Paul looked at his father, back to Howard, suddenly conscious of the Mentat's great age, aware that the old man had served three generations of Atreides. Aged. It showed in the roomy shine of the brown eyes, in the cheeks cracked and burned by exotic weathers, in the rounded curve of the shoulders and the thin set of his lips, with the cranberry-coloured stain of sappho juice. So much depends on one aged man, Paul thought. We're presently in a war of assassins, the Duke said, but it has not achieved full scale. Thufir, what's the condition of the Harkonnen machine here? We've eliminated 259 of their key people, my lord, 
No more than three Harkonnen cells remain. Perhaps a hundred people in all. These Harkonnen creatures you eliminated, the Duke said. Were they profited? Most were well situated, my lord. In the entrepreneur class. I want you to forge certificates of allegiance over the signatures of each of them, the Duke said. File copies with the judge of the change. We'll take the legal position that they stayed under false allegiance. Confiscate their property. Take everything. Turn out their families. Strip them. And make sure the Crown gets its ten percent. It must be entirely legal. Thufir smiled, revealing red-stained teeth beneath the carmine lips. A move worthy of your grandsire, my lord. It shames me that I didn't think of it first. Halleck frowned across the table, noticing a deep scowl on Paul's face. The others were smiling and nodding. It's wrong, Paul thought. This'll only make the others fight all the harder. They've nothing to gain by surrendering. He knew the actual no-holds-barred convention that ruled in Canley, but this was the sort of move that could destroy them, even as it gave them victory. I have been a stranger in a strange land, Halleck quoted. Paul stared at him, recognising the quotation from the O.C. Bible, wondering, does Gurney, too, wish an end to devious plots? The Duke glanced at the darkness out the windows, looked back at Halleck. Gurney, how many of those sand workers did you persuade to stay with us? Two hundred eighty-six in all, sire. I think we should take them and consider ourselves lucky. They're all in useful categories. No more? The Duke pursed his lips. Then, well, pass the word along to— A disturbance at the door interrupted him. Duncan Idaho came through the guard there, hurried down the length of the table and bent over the Duke's ear. Leto waved him back, said, Speak out, Duncan. You can see this is strategy stuff. Paul studied Idaho, marking the feline movements, the swiftness of reflex that made him such a difficult weapons teacher to emulate. Idaho's dark, round face turned toward Paul. The cave-sitter eyes gave no hint of recognition, but Paul recognised the mask of serenity over excitement. Idaho looked down the length of the table, said, We've taken a force of Harkonnen mercenaries disguised as Fremen. The Fremen themselves sent us a courier to warn of the false band. In the attack, however, we found the Harkonnens had waylaid the Fremen courier, badly wounded him. We were bringing him here for treatment by our medics when he died. I'd seen how badly off the man was and stopped to do what I could. I surprised him in the attempt to throw something away. Idaho glanced down at Leto. A knife, my lord. A knife, the like of which you've never seen. Chris knife? someone asked. No doubt of it, Idaho said. Milky white and glowing with a light of its own like. He reached into his tunic, brought out a sheath with a black ridged handle protruding from it. Keep that blade in its sheath. The voice came from the open door at the end of the room, a vibrant and penetrating voice that brought them all up, staring. A tall, robed figure stood in the door, barred by the crossed swords of the guard. A light tan robe completely enveloped the man except for a gap in the hood and black veil that exposed eyes of total blue. No white in them at all. Let him enter, Idaho whispered. Pass that man, the Duke said. The guards hesitated, then lowered their swords. 
The man swept into the room, stood across from the Duke. This is Stilgar, chief of the CH I visited, leader of those who warned us of the false band, Idaho said. Welcome, sir, Leto said. And why shouldn't we unsheath this blade? Stilgar glanced at Idaho, said, You observed the customs of cleanliness and honor among us. I would permit you to see the blade of the man you befriended. His gaze swept the others in the room. But I do not know these others. Would you have them defile an honorable weapon? I am the Duke Leto, the Duke said. Would you permit me to see this blade? I'll permit you to earn the right to unsheath it, Stilgar said and as a matter of protest sounded around the table, he raised a thin, darkly-veined hand. I remind you, this is the blade of one who befriended you. In the waiting silence, Paul studied the man, sensing the aura of power that radiated from him. He was a leader, a Fremen leader. A man near the centre of the table across from Paul muttered, Who's he to tell us what rights we have on Arrakis? It is said that the Duke Leto Atreides rules with the consent of the governed, the Fremen said. Thus I must tell you the way it is with us. A certain responsibility falls on those who have seen a Chris knife. He passed a dark glance across Idaho. They are ours. They may never leave Arrakis without our consent. Halleck and several of the others started to rise, angry expressions on their faces. Halleck said, The Duke Leto determines whether... One moment, please, Leto said, and the very mildness of his voice held them. This must not get out of hand, he thought. He addressed himself to the Fremen. Sir, I honour and respect the personal dignity of any man who respects my dignity. I am indeed indebted to you and I always pay my debts. If it is your custom that this knife remain sheathed here, then it is so ordered by me. And if there is any other way we may honour the man who died in our service, you have but to name it. The Fremen stared at the Duke, then slowly pulled aside his veil, revealing a thin nose and full-lipped mouth in a glistening black beard. Deliberately, he bent over the end of the table, spat, on its polished surface. As the men around the table started to surge to their feet, Idaho's voice boomed across the room. Hold! Into the sudden charged stillness, Idaho said, We thank you, Stilgar, for the life of your body's moisture. We accept it in the spirit with which it is given. And Idaho spat on the table in front of the Duke. Aside to the Duke, he said, Remember how precious water is here, sire. That was a token of respect. Leto sank back into his own chair, caught Paul's eye, a rueful grin on his son's face, sensed the slow relaxation of tension around the table as understanding came to his men. The Fremen looked at Idaho, said, You measured well in my sietch, Duncan Idaho. Is there a bond on your allegiance to your duke? He's asking me to enlist with him, sire. Idaho said. Would he accept a dual allegiance? Leto asked. You wish me to go with him, sire? I wish you to make your own decision in the matter, Leto said, and he could not keep the urgency out of his voice. 
Idaho studied the Fremen. Would you have me under these conditions, Stilgar? There be times when I'd have to return to serve my duke. You fight well, and you did your best for our friend, Stilgar said. He looked at Leto. Let it be thus. The man Idaho keeps the Chris knife he holds as a mark of his allegiance to us. He must be cleansed, of course, and the rites observed, but this can be done. He will be Fremen and soldier of the Atreides. There is precedent for this. Liet serves two masters. Duncan, Leto asked. I understand, sir, Idaho said. It is agreed, then, Leto said. Your water is ours, Duncan Idaho, Stilgar said. The body of our friend remains with your duke. His water is Atreides' water. It is a bond between us. Leto sighed, glanced at Howard, catching the old Mentat's eye. Howard nodded, his expression pleased. I will await below, Stilgar said, while Idaho makes farewell with his friends. Turok was the name of our dead friend. Remember that when it comes time to release his spirit. You are friends of Turok. Stilgar started to turn away. Will you not stay a while? Leto asked. The Fremen turned back, whipping his veil into place with a casual gesture, adjusting something beneath it. Paul glimpsed what looked like a thin tube before the veil settled into place. Is there reason to stay? the Fremen asked. We would honour you, the Duke said. Honour requires that I be elsewhere soon, the Fremen said. He shot another glance at Idaho, whirled and strode out past the door guards. If the other Fremen match him, we'll serve each other well, Leto said. Idaho spoke in a dry voice. He's a fair sample, sir. You understand what you're to do, Duncan. I'm your ambassador to the Fremen, sire. Much depends on you, Duncan. We're going to need at least five battalions of those people before the Sardaukar descend on us. This is going to take some doing, sire. The Fremen are a pretty independent bunch. Idaho hesitated. Then, and, sire, there's one other thing. One of the mercenaries we knocked over was trying to get this blade from our dead Fremen friend. The mercenary says there's a Harkonnen reward of a million salaries for anyone who'll bring in a single Chris knife. Leto's chin came up in a movement of obvious surprise. Why do they want one of those blades so badly? The knife is ground from a sandworm's tooth. It's the mark of the Fremen, sire. With it, a blue-eyed man could penetrate any siege in the land. They'd question me unless I were known. I don't look Fremen, but... Peter de Vries the duke said. A man of devilish cunning, my lord, Howard said. Idaho slipped the sheathed knife beneath his tunic. Guard that knife, the duke said. I understand, my lord. He patted the transceiver on his belt kit. I'll report as soon as possible. Thufir has my call code. Use battle language. He saluted, spun about, and hurried after the Fremen. They heard his footsteps drumming down the corridor. A look of understanding passed between Leto and Howard. They smiled. We've much to do, sir, Halleck said. And I keep you from your work, Leto said. I have the report on the advanced bases, Howard said. Shall I give it another time, sir? Will it take long? 
Not for a briefing. It's said among the Fremen that there were more than two hundred of these advanced bases built here on Arrakis during the Desert Botanical Testing Station period. All supposedly have been abandoned, but there are reports they were sealed off before being abandoned. Equipment in them? the Duke asked. According to the reports I have from Duncan. Where are they located? Halleck asked. The answer to that question, Howard said, is invariably, Liet knows. God knows, Leto muttered. Perhaps not, sire, Howard said. You heard this, Stilgar used the name. Could he have been referring to a real person? Serving two masters, Halleck said. It sounds like a religious quotation. And you should know, the duke said. Halleck smiled. This judge of the change, Leto said, the imperial ecologist Kynes. Wouldn't he know where those bases are? Sir, Howard cautioned, this Kynes is an imperial servant. And he's a long way from the emperor, Leto said. I want those bases. They'd be loaded with materials we could salvage and use for repair of our working equipment. Sir, Howard said, those bases are still legally his majesty's fief. The weather here is savage enough to destroy anything, the duke said. We can always blame the weather. Get this kinds and at least find out if the bases exist. Twere dangerous to commandeer them, Howard said. Duncan was clear on one thing. Those bases, or the idea of them, hold some deep significance for the Fremen. We might alienate the Fremen if we took those bases. Paul looked at the faces of the men around them, saw the intensity of the way they followed every word. They appeared deeply disturbed by his father's attitude. Listen to him, father, Paul said in a low voice. He speaks truth. Sire, Howard said, those bases could give us material to repair every piece of equipment left us, yet be beyond reach for strategic reasons. It'd be rash to move without greater knowledge. This kinds has arbiter authority from the Imperium. We mustn't forget that. And the Fremen defer to him. Do it gently, then, the Duke said. I wish to know only if those bases exist. As you will, sir. Howard sat back, lowered his eyes. All right, then, the Duke said. We know what we have ahead of us. Work. We've been trained for it. We've some experience in it. We know what the rewards are, and the alternatives are clear enough. You all have your assignments. He looked at Halleck. Gurney, take care of that smuggler situation first. I shall go unto the rebellious that dwell in the dry land, Halleck intoned. Some day I'll catch that man without a quotation, and he'll look undressed, the Duke said. Chuckles echoed around the table, but Paul heard the effort in them. The Duke turned to Howard. Set up another command post for intelligence and communications on this floor, Thufir. When you have them ready, I'll want to see you. Howard arose, glancing around the room as though seeking support. He turned away, led the procession out of the room. The others moved hurriedly, scraping their chairs on the floor, balling up in little knots of confusion. It ended up in confusion, Paul thought, staring at the backs of the last men to leave. Always before, staff had ended on an incisive air. This meeting had just seemed to trickle out, worn down by its own inadequacies and with an argument to top it off. 
For the first time, Paul allowed himself to think about the real possibility of defeat, not thinking about it out of fear or because of warnings such as that of the old reverend mother, but facing up to it because of his own assessment of the situation. My father is desperate, he thought. Things aren't going well for us at all. And Howard? Paul recalled how the old mentat had acted during the conference, subtle hesitations, signs of unrest. Howard was deeply troubled by something. Best you remain here the rest of the night, son, the Duke said. It'll be dawn soon, anyway. I'll inform your mother. He got to his feet slowly, stiffly. Why don't you pull a few of these chairs together and stretch out on them for some rest? I'm not very tired, sir. As you will. The Duke folded his hands behind him, began pacing up and down the length of the table. Like a caged animal, Paul thought. Are you going to discuss the traitor possibility with Howard? Paul asked. The Duke stopped across from his son, spoke to the dark windows. We've discussed the possibility many times. The old woman seemed so sure of herself, Paul said. And the message, mother? Precautions have been taken, the Duke said. He looked around the room, and Paul marked the hunted wildness in his father's eyes. Remain here. There are some things about the command posts I want to discuss with Thufir. He turned, strode out of the room, nodding shortly to the door guards. Paul stared at the place where his father had stood. The space had been empty even before the Duke left the room. And he recalled the old woman's warning. For the father, nothing. On that first day when Muad'Dib rode through the streets of Erekin with his family, some of the people along the way recalled the legends and the prophecy, and they ventured to shout, Mahdi. But their shout was more a question than a statement, for as yet they could only hope he was the one foretold as the Lisan al-Ya'ib, the voice from the outer world. Their attention was focused, too, on the mother, because they had heard she was a Beni Gesserit, and it was obvious to them that she was like the other Lisan al-Ga'ib. From Manual of Muad'Dib by the Princess Irulan. The Duke found Thufir Hawat alone in the corner room to which a guard directed him. There was the sound of men setting up communications equipment in an adjoining room, but this place was fairly quiet. The Duke glanced around as Howard arose from a paper-cluttered table. It was a green-walled enclosure with, in addition to the table, three suspenser chairs from which the Harkonnen H had been hastily removed, leaving an imperfect colour patch. The chairs are liberated, but quite safe. Where is Paul, sire? I left him in the conference room. I'm hoping he'll get some rest without me there to distract him. Howard nodded, crossed to the door to the adjoining room, closed it, shutting off the noise of static and electronic sparking. Thufir, the Imperial and Harkonnen stockpiles of spice attract my attention. My lord? The Duke pursed his lips. Storehouses are susceptible to destruction. He raised a hand as Howard started to speak. Ignore the Emperor's hoard. He'd secretly enjoy it if the Harkonnens were embarrassed. And can the Baron object if something is destroyed which he cannot openly admit that he has? 
We've few men to spare, sire. Use some of Idaho's men. And perhaps some of the Fremen would enjoy a trip off-planet. A raid on Gaiety Prime. There are tactical advantages to such a diversion, Thufir. As you say, my lord. Howard turned away, and the duke saw evidence of nervousness in the old man, thought, perhaps he suspects I distrust him. He must know I've private reports of traitors. Well, best quiet his fears immediately. Thufir, since you're one of the few I can trust completely, there's another matter bears discussion. We both know how constant a watch we must keep to prevent traitors from infiltrating our forces. But I have two new reports. Howard turned, stared at him, and later repeated the stories Paul had brought. Instead of bringing on the intense Mentat concentration, the reports only increased Howard's agitation. Leto studied the old man. You've been holding something back, old friend. I should have suspected when you were so nervous during staff. What is it that was too hot to dump in front of the full conference? Howard's sappho-stained lips were pulled into a prim, straight line with tiny wrinkles radiating into them. My lord, I don't quite know how to broach this. We've suffered many a scar for each other, Thufir. You know you can broach any subject with me. Howard continued to stare at him, thinking, This is how I like him best. This is the man of honor who deserves every bit of my loyalty and service. Why must I hurt him? Well? It's a scrap of note. We took it from a Harkonnen courier. The note was intended for an agent named Pardy. We've good reason to believe Pardy was top man in the Harkonnen underground here. The note, it's a thing that could have great consequence or no consequence. It's susceptible to various interpretations. What's the delicate content of this note? A scrap of note, my lord. Incomplete. It was on mnemic film with the usual destruction capsule attached. We stopped the acid action just short of full erasure, leaving only a fragment. The fragment, however, is extremely suggestive. Yes. Howard rubbed at his lips. It says, Ato will never suspect, and when the blow falls on him from a beloved hand, its source alone should be enough to destroy him. The note was under the Baron's own seal, and I've authenticated the seal. Your suspicion is obvious. I'd sooner cut off my arms than to hurt you. My lord, what if... The Lady Jessica. Couldn't you wring the facts out of this party? Unfortunately, party no longer was among the living when we intercepted the courier. The courier, I'm certain, did not know what he carried. I see. Leto shook his head, thinking, what a slimy piece of business. There can't be anything in it. I know my woman. My lord, if... No! There's a mistake here that... We cannot ignore it, my lord. She's been with me for sixteen years. There have been countless opportunities for... You yourself investigated the school and the woman. Things have been known to escape me. It's impossible, I tell you. The Harkonnens want to destroy the Atreides line, meaning Paul, too. They've already tried once. Could a woman conspire against her own son? 
Perhaps she doesn't conspire against her son, and yesterday's attempt could have been a clever sham. It couldn't have been a sham. Sire, she isn't supposed to know her parentage, but what if she does know? What if she were an orphan, say, orphaned by an Atreides? She'd have moved long before now. Poison in my drink, a stiletto at night. Who has had better opportunity? The Harkonnens mean to destroy you, my lord. Their intent is not just to kill. There's a range of fine distinctions in Conley. This could be a work of art among vendettas. The Duke's shoulders slumped. He closed his eyes, looking old and tired. It cannot be, he thought. The woman has opened her heart to me. What better way to destroy me than to sow suspicion of the woman I love? An interpretation I've considered. Still. The Duke opened his eyes, stared at Howard, thinking, let him be suspicious. Suspicion is his trade, not mine. Perhaps if I appear to believe this, that will make another man careless. What do you suggest? For now, constant surveillance, my lord. She should be watched at all times. I will see it's done unobtrusively. Idaho would be the ideal choice for the job. Perhaps in a week or so we can bring him back. There's a young man we've been training in Idaho's troop who might be ideal to send to the Fremen as a replacement. He's gifted in diplomacy. Don't jeopardize our foothold with the Fremen. Of course not, sir. And what about Paul? Perhaps we could alert Dr. Yui. Leto turned his back on Howard. I leave it in your hands. I shall use discretion, my lord. At least I can count on that, Leto thought. I will take a walk. If you need me, I'll be within the perimeter. The guard can- My lord, before you go, I have a film clip you should read. It's a first approximation analysis on the Fremen religion. You'll recall you asked me to report on it. The Duke paused, spoke without turning. Will it not wait? Of course, my lord. You asked what they were shouting, though. It was Madi. They directed the term at the young master. When they- At Paul? Yes, my lord. They've a legend here, a prophecy, that a leader will come to them, child of a Bene Gesserit, to lead them to true freedom. It follows the familiar messiah pattern. They think Paul is this... this... They only hope, my lord. Howard extended a film clip capsule. The duke accepted it, thrust it into a pocket. I'll look at it later. Certainly, my lord. Right now I need time to... think. Yes, my lord. The duke took a deep, sighing breath, strode out the door. He turned to his right, down the hall, began walking, hands behind his back, paying little attention to where he was. There were corridors and stairs and balconies and halls, people who saluted and stood aside for him. In time he came back to the conference room, found it dark, and Paul asleep on the table with a guard's robe thrown over him and a ditty pack for a pillow. The Duke walked softly down the length of the room and onto the balcony overlooking the landing field, a guard at the corner of the balcony, recognizing the duke by the dim reflection of lights from the field, snapped to attention. At ease, the duke murmured. He leaned against the cold metal of the balcony rail. 
A pre-dawn hush had come over the desert basin. He looked up. Straight overhead, the stars were a sequin shawl flung over blue-black. Low on the southern horizon, the night's second moon peered through a thin dust haze, an unbelieving moon that looked at him with a cynical light. As the duke watched, the moon dipped beneath the shield-wall cliffs, frosting them, and in the sudden intensity of darkness, he experienced a chill. He shivered. Anger shot through him. The Harkonnens have hindered and hounded and hunted me for the last time, he thought. They are dung heaps with village provost minds. Here I make my stand. And he thought, with a touch of sadness, I must rule with eye and claw, as the hawk among lesser birds. Unconsciously, his hand brushed the hawk emblem on his tunic. To the east, the night grew a faggot of luminous grey, then seashell opalescence that dimmed the stars. There came the long, bell-tolling movement of dawn striking across a broken horizon. It was a scene of such beauty, it caught all his attention. Some things beggar likeness, he thought. He had never imagined anything here could be as beautiful as that shattered red horizon and the purple and ochre cliffs. Beyond the landing field, where the night's faint dew had touched life into the hurried seeds of Arrakis, he saw great puddles of red blooms and, running through them, an articulate tread of violet, like giant footsteps. It's a beautiful morning, sir, the guard said. Yes, it is. The duke nodded, thinking, perhaps this planet could grow on one. Perhaps it could become a good home for my son. Then he saw the human figures moving into the flower fields, sweeping them with strange, scythe-like devices, dew gatherers. Water so precious here that even the dew must be collected. And it could be a hideous place, the Duke thought. There is probably no more terrible instant of enlightenment than the one in which you discover your father is a man with human flesh. From Collected Sayings of Muad'Dib by the Princess Irulan. The Duke said, Paul, I'm doing a hateful thing, but I must. He stood beside the portable poison snooper that had been brought into the conference room for their breakfast. The thing's sensor arms hung limply over the table, reminding Paul of some weird insect newly dead. The Duke's attention was directed out the windows at the landing field and its roiling of dust against the morning sky. Paul had a viewer in front of him containing a short film clip on Fremen religious practices. The clip had been compiled by one of Howard's experts, and Paul found himself disturbed by the references to himself. Matif. Lisan al-Gaib. He could close his eyes and recall the shouts of the crowds. So that is what they hope, he thought. And he remembered what the old reverend mother had said, Kwisatz Haderach. The memories touched his feelings of terrible purpose, shading this strange world with sensations of familiarity that he could not understand. A hateful thing, the duke said. What do you mean, sir? Leto turned, looked down at his son. 
because the Harkonnens think to trick me by making me distrust your mother. And they don't know that I'd sooner distrust myself. I don't understand, sir. Again, Leto looked out the windows. The white sun was well up into its morning quadrant. Milky light picked out a boiling of dust clouds that spilled over into the blind canyons interfingering the shield wall. Slowly, speaking in a slow voice to contain his anger, the Duke explained to Paul about the mysterious note. You might just as well mistrust me, Paul said. They have to think they've succeeded, the Duke said. They must think me this much of a fool. It must look real. Even your mother may not know the sham. But, sir, why? Your mother's response must not be an act. Oh, she's capable of a supreme act, but too much rides on this. I hope to smoke out a traitor. It must seem that I've been completely cousined. She must be hurt this way that she does not suffer greater hurt. Why do you tell me, father? Maybe I'll give it away. They'll not watch you in this thing, the duke said. You'll keep the secret. You must. He walked to the windows, spoke without turning. This way, if anything should happen to me, you can tell her the truth. That I never doubted her, not for the smallest instant. I should want her to know this. Paul recognized the death thoughts in his father's words. Spoke quickly. Nothing's going to happen to you, sir. The Be silent, son. Paul stared at his father's back, seeing the fatigue in the angle of the neck, in the line of the shoulders, in the slow movements. You're just tired, father. I am tired, the duke agreed. I'm morally tired. The melancholy degeneration of the great houses has afflicted me at last, perhaps. And we were such strong people once. Paul spoke in quick anger. Our house hasn't degenerated, hasn't it? The duke turned, faced his son, revealing dark circles beneath hard eyes, a cynical twist of mouth. I should wed your mother, make her my duchess. Yet, my unwedded state gives some houses hope they may yet ally with me through their marriageable daughters, he shrugged. So, I... Mother has explained this to me. Nothing wins more loyalty for a leader than an heir of bravura, the duke said. I, therefore, cultivate an heir of bravura. You lead well, Paul protested. You govern well. Men follow you willingly and love you. My propaganda corps is one of the finest, the duke said. Again he turned to stare out at the basin. There's greater possibility for us here on Arrakis than the Imperium could ever suspect. Yet sometimes I think it'd have been better if we'd run for it, gone renegade. Sometimes I wish we could sink back into anonymity among the people, become less exposed to- Father! Yes. I am tired, the duke said. Did you know we're using spice residue as raw material, and already have our own factory to manufacture film base? Sir? We mustn't run short of film base, the duke said. Else, how could we flood village and city with our information? The people must learn how well I govern them. How would they know if we didn't tell them? 
you should get some rest, Paul said. Again, the duke faced his son. Arrakis has another advantage I almost forgot to mention. Spice is in everything here. You breathe it and eat it in almost everything. And I find that this imparts a certain natural immunity to some of the most common poisons of the Assassin's Handbook. And the need to watch every drop of water puts all food production, yeast culture, hydroponics, chemovit, everything under the strictest surveillance. We cannot kill off large segments of our population with poison, and we cannot be attacked this way either. Arrakis makes us moral and ethical. Paul started to speak, but the Duke cut him off, saying, I have to have someone I can say these things to, son. He sighed, glanced back at the dry landscape where even the flowers were gone now, trampled by the dew-gatherers, wilted under the early sun. On Caladan we ruled with sea and air power, the Duke said. Here we must scrabble for desert power. This is your inheritance, Paul. What is to become of you if anything happens to me? You'll not be a renegade house, but a guerrilla house, running, hunted. Paul groped for words, could find nothing to say. He had never seen his father this despondent. To hold Arrakis, the duke said, one is faced with decisions that may cost one his self-respect. He pointed out the window to the Atreides' green and black banner hanging limply from a staff at the edge of the landing field. That honourable banner could come to mean many evil things. Paul swallowed in a dry throat. His father's words carried futility, a sense of fatalism that left the boy with an empty feeling in his chest. The Duke took an anti-fatigue tablet from a pocket, gulped it dry. Power and fear he said, the tools of statecraft. I must order a new emphasis on guerrilla training for you. That film clip there, they call you Mahdi, Lisan al-Gaib. As a last resort, you might capitalize on that. Paul stared at his father, watching the shoulders straighten as the tablet did its work, but remembering the words of fear and doubt. What's keeping that ecologist? The Duke muttered. I told Thufir to have him here early. My father, the Padishah Emperor, took me by the hand one day, and I sensed in the ways my mother had taught me that he was disturbed. He led me down the hall of portraits to the ego-likeness of the Duke Leto Atreides. I marked the strong resemblance between them, my father and this man in the portrait, both with thin, elegant faces and sharp features dominated by cold eyes. Princess daughter, my father said, I would that you'd been older when it came time for this man to choose a woman. My father was 71 at the time, and looking no older than the man in the portrait, and I was but 14. Yet I remember deducing in that instant that my father secretly wished the Duke had been his son, and disliked the political necessities that made them enemies. In My Father's House by Princess Irulan. His first encounter with the people he had been ordered to betray left Dr. Kynes shaken. He prided himself on being a scientist to whom legends were merely interesting clues pointing toward cultural roots. Yet the boy fitted the ancient prophecy so precisely. He had, 
the questing eyes, and the air of reserved candor. Of course, the prophecy left certain latitude as to whether the mother goddess would bring the Messiah with her, or produce him on the scene. Still, there was this odd correspondence between prediction and persons. They met in mid-morning outside the Arikeen Landing Fields Administration Building. An unmarked ornithopter squatted nearby, humming softly on standby like a somnolent insect. An Atreides guard stood beside it with bared sword and the faint air distortion of a shield around him. Kynes sneered at the shield pattern, thinking, Arrakis has a surprise for them there. The planetologist raised a hand, signalled for his Fremen guard to fall back. He strode on ahead toward the building's entrance, the dark hole in plastic-coated rock. So exposed, that monolithic building, he thought, so much less suitable than a cave. Movement within the entrance caught his attention. He stopped, taking the moment to adjust his robe and the set of his still suit at the left shoulder. The entrance doors swung wide. Atreides' guards emerged swiftly, all of them heavily armed, slow pellet stunners, swords and shields. Behind them came a tall man, hawk-faced, dark of skin and hair. He wore a jubber cloak with a Atreides' crest at the breast, and wore it in a way that betrayed his unfamiliarity with the garment. It clung to the legs of his still suit on one side. It lacked a free-swinging, striding rhythm. Beside the man walked a youth with the same dark hair, but rounder in the face. The youth seemed small for the fifteen years Kynes knew him to have, but the young body carried a sense of command, a poised assurance, as though he saw and knew things all around him that were not visible to others. And he wore the same style cloak as his father, yet with casual ease that made one think the boy had always worn such clothing. The Mahdi will be aware of things others cannot see, went the prophecy. Kynes shook his head, telling himself, they're just people. With the two garbed like them for the desert came a man Kynes recognized, Gurney Halleck. Kynes took a deep breath to still his resentment against Halleck, who had briefed him on how to behave with the duke and ducal heir. You may call the duke my lord or sire, Noble-born also is correct, but usually reserved for more formal occasions. The son may be addressed as young master or my lord. The duke is a man of much leniency, but brooks little familiarity. And Kynes thought as he watched the group approach, they'll learn soon enough who's master on Arrakis. Order me questioned half the night by that mentat, will they? Expect me to guide them on an inspection of spice mining, do they? The import of Howard's questions had not escaped Kynes. They wanted the Imperial bases, and it was obvious they'd learned of the bases from Idaho. I will have Stilgar send Idaho's head to this duke, Kynes told himself. The ducal party was only a few paces away now, their feet in desert boots crunching the sand. Kynes bowed. My lord, duke. As he had approached the solitary figure standing near the ornithopter, Leto had studied him, tall, thin, dressed for the desert in loose robe, still suit, and low boots. The man's hood was thrown back, its veil hanging to one side, revealing long sandy hair, a sparse beard. 
The eyes were that fathomless blue within blue under thick brows. Remains of dark stains smudged his eye sockets. You're the ecologist, the duke said. We prefer the old title here, my lord, Kynes said. Planetologist, as you wish, the duke said. He glanced down at Paul. Son, this is the judge of the change, the arbiter of dispute, the man set here to see that the forms are obeyed in our assumption of power over this fief. He glanced at Kynes. And this is my son. My lord, Kynes said. Are you a Fremen? Paul asked. Kynes smiled. I am accepted in both CH and village, young master, but I am in his majesty's service, the imperial planetologist. Paul nodded, impressed by the man's air of strength. Halleck had pointed Kynes out to Paul from an upper window of the administration building. The man standing there with a the Fremen escort, the one moving now toward the ornithopter. Paul had inspected Kynes briefly with binoculars, noting the prim, straight mouth, the high forehead. Halleck had spoken in Paul's ear. Odd sort of fellow. As a precise way of speaking. Clipped off, no fuzzy edges. Razor apt. And the Duke, behind them, had said, Scientist type. Now, only a few feet from the man, Paul sensed the power in Kynes the impact of personality, as though he were blood royal, born to command. I understand we have you to thank for our still suits and these cloaks, the duke said. I hope they fit well, my lord, Kynes said. They're a Fremen make, and as near as possible the dimensions given me by your man Halleck here. I was concerned that you said you couldn't take us into the desert unless we wore these garments, the duke said. We can carry plenty of water. We don't intend to be out long, and we'll have air cover. The escort you see overhead right now. It isn't likely we'd be forced down. Kynes stared at him, seeing the water-fat flesh. He spoke coldly. You never talk of likelihoods on Arrakis. You speak only of possibilities. Halleck stiffened. The Duke is to be addressed as my lord or sire. Later gave Halleck their private hand signal to desist, said... Our ways are new here, Gurney. We must make allowances. As you wish, sir. We are indebted to you, Dr. Kynes, Leto said. These suits and the consideration for our welfare will be remembered. On impulse, Paul called to mind a quotation from the O.C. Bible, said, The gift is the blessing of the giver. The words rang out over loud in the still air. The Fremen escort Kynes had left in the shade of the administration building leaped up from their squatting repose, muttering in open agitation. One cried out, Lisa Nalgayib! Kynes whirled, gave a curt chopping signal with a hand, waved the guard away. They fell back, grumbling among themselves, trailed away around the building. Most interesting, Leto said. Kynes passed a hard glare over the Duke and Paul, said, most of the desert natives here are a superstitious lot. Pay no attention to them. They mean no harm. But he thought of the words of the legend. They will greet you with holy words, and your gifts will be a blessing. Leto's assessment of Kynes, based partly on Howard's brief verbal report, guarded and full of suspicions, suddenly crystallized. 
The man was Fremen. Kynes had come with a Fremen escort, which could mean simply that the Fremen were testing their new freedom to enter urban areas, but it had seemed an honour guard. And by his manner, Kynes was a proud man, accustomed to freedom, his tongue and his manner guarded only by his own suspicions. Paul's question had been direct and pertinent. Kynes had gone native. "'Shouldn't we be going, sir?' Halleck asked. The Duke nodded. I'll fly my own thopter. Kynes can sit up front with me to direct me. You and Paul take the rear seats. One moment, please, Kynes said. With your permission, sire, I must check the security of your suits. The Duke started to speak, but Kynes pressed on. I have concern for my own flesh as well as yours, my lord. I'm well aware of whose throat would be slit, should harm befall you two while you're in my care. The Duke frowned, thinking... How delicate this moment. If I refuse, it may offend him. And this could be a man whose value to me is beyond measure. Yet, to let him inside my shield, touching my person, when I know so little about him? The thoughts flicked through his mind with decision hard on their heels. We're in your hands, the Duke said. He stepped forward, opening his robe, saw Halleck come up on the balls of his feet, poised and alert, but remaining where he was. And, if you'd be so kind, the Duke said, I'd appreciate an explanation of the suit from one who lives so intimately with it. Certainly, Kynes said. He felt up under the robe for the shoulder seals, speaking as he examined the suit. It's basically a micro-sandwich, a high-efficiency filter and heat-exchange system. He adjusted the shoulder seals. The skin contact layer's porous. Perspiration passes through it having cooled the body, near normal evaporation process. The next two layers, Kynes tightened the chest fit, include heat exchange filaments and salt precipitators, salts reclaimed. The Duke lifted his arms at a gesture, said, Most interesting. Breathe deeply, Kynes said. The Duke obeyed. Kynes studied the underarm seals, adjusted one. Motions of the body, especially breathing, he said, and some osmotic action provide the pumping force. He loosened the chest fit slightly. Reclaimed water circulates to catch pockets from which you draw it through this tube in the clip at your neck. The Duke twisted his chin in and down to look at the end of the tube. Efficient and convenient, he said. Good engineering. Kynes knelt, examined the leg seals. Urine and feces are processed in the thigh pads, he said, and stood up, felt the neck fitting, lifted a sectioned flap there. In the open desert, you wear this filter across your face, this tube in the nostrils with these plugs to ensure a tight fit. Breathe in through the mouth filter, out through the nose tube. With a Fremen suit in good working order, you won't lose more than a thimbleful of moisture a day, even if you're caught in the great erg. A thimbleful a day, the Duke said. Kynes pressed a finger against the suit's forehead pad, said, This may rub a little. If it irritates you, please tell me. I could slit-patch it a bit tighter. My thanks, the Duke said. He moved his shoulders in the suit as Kynes stepped back, realizing that it did feel better now, tighter and less irritating. Kynes turned to Paul. Now, let's have a look at you, lad. A good man, but he'll have to learn to address us properly, the Duke thought. 
Paul stood passively as Kynes inspected the suit. It had been an odd sensation, putting on the crinkling, slick-surfaced garment. In his foreconsciousness had been the absolute knowledge that he had never before worn a still suit. Yet, each motion of adjusting the adhesion tabs under Gurney's inexpert guidance had seemed natural, instinctive. When he had tightened the chest to gain maximum pumping action from the motion of breathing, he had known what he did, and why. When he had fitted the neck and forehead tabs tightly, he had known it was to prevent friction blisters. Kynes straightened, stepped back with a puzzled expression. You've worn a still suit before? he asked. This is the first time. Then someone adjusted it for you? No. Your desert boots are fitted slip fashion at the ankles. Who told you to do that? It seemed the right way. That it most certainly is. And Kynes rubbed his cheek, thinking of the legend. He shall know your ways as though born to them. We waste time, the Duke said. He gestured to the waiting Thopter, led the way, accepting the guard's salute with a nod. He climbed in, fastened his safety harness, checked controls and instruments. The craft creaked as the others clambered aboard. Kynes fastened his harness, focused on the padded comfort of the aircraft, soft luxury of grey-green upholstery, gleaming instruments, the sensation of filtered and washed air in his lungs as doors slammed and vent fans whirred alive. So soft, he thought. All secure, sir, Halleck said. Leto fed power to the wings, felt them cup and dip once, twice. They were airborne in ten meters, wings feathered tightly and after jets thrusting them upward in a steep, hissing climb. Southeast over the shield wall, Kynes said. That's where I told your sandmaster to concentrate his equipment. Right. The Duke banked into his air cover, the other craft taking up their guard positions as they headed southeast. The design and manufacture of these still suits bespeaks a high degree of sophistication, the Duke said. Some day I may show you a CH factory, Kynes said. I would find that interesting, the Duke said. I note that suits are manufactured also in some of the garrison cities. Inferior copies, Kynes said. Any dune man who values his skin wears a Fremen suit. And it'll hold your water loss to a thimbleful a day. Properly suited, your forehead cap tight, all seals in order. Your major water loss is through the palms of your hands, Kynes said. You can wear suit gloves if you're not using your hands for critical work, but most Fremen in the open desert rub their hands with juice from the leaves of the creosote bush. It inhibits perspiration. The Duke glanced down to the left at the broken landscape of the shield wall. Chasms of tortured rock, patches of yellow-brown crossed by black lines of fault-shattering. It was as though someone had dropped this ground from space and left it where it smashed. They crossed a shallow basin with a clear outline of grey sand spreading across it from a canyon opening to the south. The sand fingers ran out into the basin, a dry delta outlined against darker rock. Kynes sat back, thinking about the water-fat flesh he had felt beneath the still suits. They wore shield belts over their robes, slow pellet stunners at the waist, coin-sized emergency transmitters on cords around their necks. Both the Duke and his son carried knives in wrist sheaths, and the sheaths appeared well-worn. 
The people struck Kynes as a strange combination of softness and armed strength. There was a poise to them totally unlike the Harkonnens. When you report to the Emperor on the change of government here, will you say we observed the rules? Leto asked. He glanced at Kynes, back to their course. The Harkonnens left, you came, Kynes said. And is everything as it should be? Leto asked. Momentary tension showed in the tightening of a muscle along Kynes's jaw. As planetologist and judge of the change, I am a direct subject of the Imperium, my lord. The Duke smiled grimly. But we both know the realities. I remind you that His Majesty supports my work. Indeed. And what is your work? In the brief silence, Paul thought, he's pushing this kinds too hard. Paul glanced at Halleck, but the minstrel warrior was staring out at the barren landscape. Kynes spoke stiffly. You, of course, refer to my duties as planetologist. Of course. It is mostly dry land biology and botany, some geological work, core drilling and testing. You never really exhaust the possibilities of an entire planet. Do you also investigate the spice? Kynes turned, and Paul noted the hard line of the man's cheek. A curious question, my lord? Bear in mind, Kynes, that this is now my fief. My methods differ from those of the Harkonnens. I don't care if you study the spice as long as I share what you discover. He glanced at the planetologist. The Harkonnens discouraged investigation of the spice, didn't they? Kynes stared back without answering. You may speak plainly, the Duke said, without fear for your skin. The Imperial Court is indeed a long way off, Kynes muttered, and he thought, what does this water-soft invader expect? Does he think me fool enough to enlist with him? The Duke chuckled, keeping his attention on their course. I detect a sour note in your voice, sir. We've waded in here with our mob of tame killers, eh? And we expect you to realize immediately that we're different from the Harkonnens? I've seen the propaganda you flooded into Siege and Village, Kynes said. Love the good Duke. Your core of— Here now, Halleck barked. He snapped his attention away from the window, leaned forward. Paul put a hand on Halleck's arm. Gurney, the Duke said. He glanced back. This man's been long under the Harkonnens. Halleck sat back. Ah, yeah. Your man Howard's subtle, Kynes said, but his object's plain enough. Will you open those bases to us, then? the Duke asked. Kynes spoke curtly. They're His Majesty's property. They're not being used. They could be used. Does His Majesty concur? Kynes darted a hard stare at the Duke. Arrakis could be an Eden, if its rulers would look up from grubbing for spice. He didn't answer my question, the Duke thought. And he said, How is a planet to become an Eden without money? What is money? Kynes asked. If it won't buy the services you need. Ah, now, the Duke thought. And he said, We'll discuss this another time. Right now I believe we're coming to the edge of the shield wall. Do I hold the same course? The same course, Kynes muttered. Paul looked out his window. Beneath them, the broken ground began to drop away in tumbled creases toward a barren rock plain and a knife-edged shelf. Beyond the shelf, 
Fingernail crescents of dunes marched toward the horizon with here and there in the distance a dull smudge, a darker blotch to tell of something not sand. Rock outcroppings, perhaps. In the heat-addled air, Paul couldn't be sure. Are there any plants down there? Paul asked. Some, Kynes said. This latitude's life zone has mostly what we call minor water stealers, adapted to raiding each other for moisture, gobbling up the trace dew. Some parts of the desert teem with life, but all of it has learned how to survive under these rigours. If you get caught down there, you imitate that life or you die. You mean steal water from each other? Paul asked. The idea outraged him, and his voice betrayed his emotion. It's done, Kynes said, but that wasn't precisely my meaning. You see, my climate demands a special attitude toward water. You are aware of water at all times. You waste nothing that contains moisture. And the Duke thought, My climate. Come around two degrees more southerly, my lord, Kynes said. There's a blow coming up from the west. The Duke nodded. He had seen the billowing of tan dust there. He banked the thopter round, noting the way the escort's wings reflected milky orange from the dust-refracted light as they turned to keep pace with him. This should clear the storm's edge, Kynes said. That sand must be dangerous if you fly into it, Paul said. Will it really cut the strongest metals? At this altitude it's not sand, but dust, Kynes said. The danger is lack of visibility, turbulence, clogged intakes. We'll see actual spice mining today, Paul asked. Very likely, Kynes said. 